Holy Father, thank you for giving us the Ten Commandments. We thank you for the clarity, the wisdom, the guidance that the Ten Commandments uh, give us for our daily lives. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live uh, increasingly a, a life of love toward you and a life of love towards others, which the Ten Commandments are all about. I pray, Lord, as we look at Commandments 7 through 10, that you would help us to live and walk in sexual purity that you would help us to respect other people's stuff and property. I pray that you would help us to speak the truth relentlessly, whether it's at home, in the workplace, or with our neighbors, or elsewhere, or in our church situation. And Lord, lastly, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, stamp out any and all covetousness and jealousy and envy of other people's stuff, or other people, or other relationships that people have. Eradicate that in us. Save us from ourselves. And Lord, help me to speak your words today, not my own. I pray that everything I would say today would be for your honor, for your glory, for your attention, and not mine. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, good. I was worried. Rosalie is going to read today's uh, scripture for us. So, Rosalie. Okay, we're reading from Exodus twenty fourteen through 17. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Whoops, sorry or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So all of those here who happen to possess donkeys or oxes, okay, you know, we shouldn't covet those. I I shouldn't make light of this. Obviously, this is written in a different time, has a different application, and we'll get there and talk about that later. We're simply continuing our current sermon series, Show Me What the Bible Says About whole point of the series based loosely on what is known as the New City Catechism. These are uh, 52 question and answers that basically teach you the basics of what the Bible teaches, sort of the core beliefs that the Bible has. And this is a great free resource. Highly recommend you downloading this free app to your Apple or Android phone. You can check it out. And it can, if it doesn't, if you think you've got basically doctrine from the Bible just sort of all sewn up and wrapped up, don't need to learn anything more about it, this is actually, I would argue, we need to constantly be coming back to these primary truths that Scripture has for us. And also a great tool to teach your kids the basics of the Bible as well. And so check that out. And so I believe that four or five of the 52 catechism questions have to do specifically with what are known as the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, okay? And two Sundays ago, we looked at the first three. Last Sunday, we looked at Commandments numbers four through six. And today, we are finishing the Big Ten by looking at Commandments seven through ten. And in fact, that's the the title of today's message, Ten Commandments seven through ten. As I said before, in echoing what is known as the King James uh, translation of the Bible written in about the 1600s, thou shalt not underestimate the impact, the influence that the Ten Commandments have had on Western culture, on our Canadian society, I would even argue on your life, even if you are not yet a Christian. The impact is enormous. In fact, look at our world. Yes, you would say, 
if you watch the news, would you argue that our world is pretty messed up, a pretty scary place a lot of the time, pretty dicey, but imagine how much worse our world would be without the Ten Commandments. Imagine that. It would be like every city in Canada, North America, worldwide, would be like Las Vegas, okay? Kind of nuts. Or it would be like, also alternatively, Mad Max playing out everywhere. And I can tell you, you don't want Mad Max. You don't want the Mad Max lifestyle. You just don't. And so that's basically what our world would be like without the Ten Commandments. And some Christians believe, though, that we should just ignore the Old Testament of the Bible. We don't need that old stuff anymore. It's outdated. You know, Jesus came. There's a new covenant. That's old covenant. Let's just ignore the Ten Commandments. I would argue, no, no, no. We, we need the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament is actually all about who? It's all about Jesus. It's all about setting up for the new covenant. And so if you miss miss the Old Testament, ignore it, you miss out on a lot of what, it, what we learn about Jesus later on. And by the way, did you know that most of the Ten Commandments are affirmed, uh, basically we are instructed as Christians under the New Covenant to follow the Ten Commandments, maybe except for the fourth one, which is to obey the, the Sabbath uh, as a day of rest, but the principle is there in Hebrews 10, 25. But there you go, we need this stuff. And one of the most helpful word pictures, I've shared this before, I'm going to say it again uh, till you're sick of hearing it, one of the most helpful word pictures for me to understand the value and the impact of the Ten Commandments is to see each commandment as a sort of guardrail for your life. All right, imagine going up to Whistler, which some of us do in the wintertime and the summer. Are you not glad on that Whistler Highway, sea to sky, that there are guardrails on the sides of the highway to prevent you, to stop you from, <clears throat> from driving straight into the ocean, never to be seen again, and your body eaten by orcas, killer whales, and even worse, sea snails. No one wants to be eaten by sea snails, although Bruce did last Sunday. And the Ten Commandments are like guardrails for your life in that same sense. They're like guardrails for your life to keep you from derailing your life, blowing up your life, diving off the edge into sin, into addiction, which only destroy you, destroy your relationships, and most horrifically, destroy your relationship with God. We don't want that. That's not helpful. We need guardrails to protect, to protect us from ourselves. The Ten Commandments can be summarized as I go on. <clears throat> According to Romans chapter 13, they can be summarized in verses 9 and 10 like this. For the commandments, Paul is referring to the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, interesting, are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, the Ten Commandments, what they do is they help us and guide us toward better loving God and more effectively loving other people in and around us, our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers, people on our street. There's the impetus, the why behind the Ten Commandments, why you need to listen to this message about Commandments 7 through 10. And before we launch into the final four commandments, let me give you some quick background to the final four. As I mentioned, the first, previous Sundays, the first four commandments have to do with your relationship, sort of a vertical axis, your relationship with God. For example, worship God alone. Don't worship idols or God replacements. Don't use God's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day as a day of rest and a day of worship towards God. You see how they are sort of God-centric in their connection, helping you keep your, your relationship with God 
flourishing and growing. Then the final six, after the first four, are designed to help your human relationships uh, flourish. Therefore, do not murder, do not steal, no adultery, no lying, no coveting. And what you need to know about these final six commandments is that they were originally given by God to the ancient Hebrew people, 1200 BC, as sort of minimum standards, minimum baseline benchmarks that would allow this Hebrew nation to be a just and a safe society instead of a crazy Las Vegas, Mad Max, unsafe, unhealthy chaotic society because actually most of the ancient societies in and around the Hebrew people and the nations back then were rather chaotic. Uh, The idea of law wasn't really well developed at that time. Therefore, the Ten Commandments. And here's what many Jewish leaders and Jewish teachers and Jewish Pharisees in and around the time of Jesus got wrong. They believed that if I follow these Ten Commandments and obey these minimum standards, well, I will then, I will fulfill the full vision and outcome that God wants for his people. And so what I'm going to do is, I'm just going to tick off the ten, the ten boxes by, a little box by each commandment. I'm going to tick them off, and if I do this with my religious clipboard, my Ten Commandments clipboard, God's going to be so impressed with me, and he's going to love me because I'm so holy for him. But the problem is, guess what happens? Jesus, who happens to be God the Son, he comes along, straightens them out. And time and again, if you examine who Jesus is most upset with and angry with, who is he most upset with and angry with? Most of the time, it's the religious leaders of the day. The guys who supposedly knew their Bibles, but they did not. They missed the forest for the trees, you see. And so Jesus confronts these guys. They wrongly believe that I've got it all together. Look at my spiritual resume. It is so impressive because I obey the Ten Commandments without fail to a T perfectly. And what Jesus does, especially when you look at and examine uh, Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, he takes these Ten Commandments further. He takes them even deeper. And in short, Jesus makes it clear that uh, they're all about love. Love towards God, love towards your neighbor. Yes, don't murder. I mean, most of us can resist doing that, whether, whether, whether we're Christians or not. Don't murder. But Jesus says, don't murder people with your words. Don't murder them with your emotions. Don't murder their emotions. And so on. And so it's not so much that you should not literally murder somebody. Of course you shouldn't. It's more rather, how can I love this person? How can I care for you? How can I support you? How can I serve you? All right? How can I make sure I don't murder you with my words? All right? That's kind of how it works. It's more about love than it is about not simply doing certain things. So I felt that was important to quickly explain sort of the difference between minimum baseline standards and then the more fuller, exhaustive intent that God has for his people and for you if you're a child in God's kingdom and a child in God's family trusting in Christ. All right, let's transition. Let's finally jump in, hopefully not over the edge or not over the guardrail, but just kind of jump in. Let's pretend we're swimming and look at commandment number seven. Just to confuse you, it's number one on your outline in your notes. Commandment number seven is simply number one, and it goes kind of like this. There is to be no actual or mental adultery. Just a light subject now that we're diving into. There is to be no actual or mental adultery in the life of the follower of Jesus. Marital faithfulness and purity is to be pursued. We get this from a couple of places. The first place that we get this from 
is the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, it says very briefly, it is five words. You ready for it? It says, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. And just to clarify, the definition of adultery in ancient 1200 BC Hebrew cultural times was simply this, and this is sort of the literal literal Hebrew understanding of the word. It's simply intercourse between a married or betrothed, that is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Engaged, but it was much deeper than engagement. Married or betrothed person, and then someone who is not their spouse, okay? And adultery at that time, it was considered to be a heinous, uh, terrible offense. Now, why is that? Why Why was it so terrible? It's because... Adultery, it caused so much disruption in the family. It broke trust between husband and wife. Kids were confused. Finances are at risk. And the potential repercussions often had a ripple effect that could last for generations, as it does today. And this is why back then, if you were caught in adultery, uh, the judicial leaders of the nation of Israel, they would actually execute it would be a death sentence for you if you were caught in adultery. And both guilty parties, by the way, let us be glad that this no longer happens today. Let us be glad for that. There would not be as many people around, period. Uh, But I share that with you. I share that with you simply to help you understand the gravity and the seriousness of this commandment, uh, why God gave this commandment to the Hebrew people and how seriously he took this particular sin. I shared this before. Let me tell you a story time. Share, you, uh, share a little story with you that I've shared before. It's a hard part now that you've been preaching to the same church for about 12 years. You repeat yourself, and it must be so annoying. It's like a broken record. Uh, but the story I'm going to repeat, repeat, I haven't shared in a little while, uh, it's a story of the church I grew up in. Um, and in this particular church many years ago, I was a kid at the time, uh, there was a particular guy, a business guy, that was there, and uh, he made it a regular practice of his to proposition other married women in the church, including my own mother. Okay? Thankfully, no comment, thankfully, the elders in the church uh, confronted this adulterous so-called Christian man. Once they found out about it, they took action right away, thankfully. And he was unrepentant. He refused to own the responsibility for his sin, and they... They kicked him out of the church. He refused to change. And sure enough, what happens? His marriage ends. He's estranged shortly after from his own children. Their finances blow up. And yet, he keeps on with the insane addiction at the expense of his marriage, at the expense of his own kids, and most horrifically, at the expense of his own relationship with Christ at the expense of his eternal Salvation. It's not worth it. It's not worth it at all, is it? Now, what's the opposite? Let's look at the opposite. Let's go deeper than this idea of pursuing adultery. What's the opposite of pursuing adultery as a married person? The opposite is for you to pursue marital faithfulness and marital purity with your spouse. In other words, if you're married uh, or are planning on being married at some point in the future... How can you, how will you work on building up your marriage, strengthening your marriage? Because a healthy marriage, it doesn't not take work. It takes intentionality. It takes time. It takes creativity. And so 
what can you do to make your marriage stronger? What can you do to make your marriage stronger today? Let me give you some ideas. I would ensure, if you desire to make your marriage stronger today, I would ensure that your romantic life together is, is, is there, it's creative, it's strong, it's consistent. Did you know that, by the way, studies prove, you know how studies go, but this one I actually believe. Studies prove that two of the most romantic things you can do for your marriage is, number one, going to church, and number two, praying together regularly and consistently. The two most romantic marriage-building things you can do is to pray together and to go to church together because, you see, if you do that, you're putting Christ at the center and the forefront of your marriage, okay? That's what you got to do. But doing these things will help prevent you from flirting with that coworker, from daydreaming about that attractive someone, from being tempted to use social media, at, and you're, you're, you're being tempted to go places via social media that you should not go into, okay? How often have I discovered or heard stories where often it starts with Facebook and then things go sideways from there, okay? All right. As I mentioned before, This command to not commit adultery, it's a minimum. It's a baseline standard for married people and for God's people. However, Jesus takes this command even further when he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27, 28, Sermon on the Mount, these words, and these are words from Jesus for you and for me, and here they are. He says, you have heard that it was said from the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now we're getting serious. And here we see Jesus. He's not just including married people with this command. He is including everyone. Do you see the word everyone in there? So this is for married people. This is for single people. And Jesus is forbidding you and I from looking at anyone with sort of lustful intent. Intent. Anyone in person, anyone on the internet, anyone on TV, anyone. Why is that? Why? Jesus says, because it's a form of adultery. It's a form of adultery. I mean, it makes sense, right? Where does actual physical adultery stem from, come from? Where does it begin? Adultery begins... In the mind, and the mind starts doing its thing, and the wheels start turning, and, and the heart starts churning, and your th- thoughts start going. And what Jesus is trying to help you and help I with, he's trying to nip these destructive, sinful thoughts in the bud. Don't even go there in your mind. Don't even go there in your inner world. Because if you go there often enough in your inner world, it will tend to manifest in your outer world, where it gets really serious. But it's just as serious. There's a lot I could say here. There's a lot. I mean, this issue is so prominent in our culture today, is it not? Let me just say to you men and women, if this is an issue for you, I would say for all guys, it's an issue. If this is an issue for you, men and women, here's what you need. Yes, obviously, you need to pray. I pray that as part of your daily regimen of praying and connecting with Jesus in prayer, Um, You need to ask Jesus to put to death by the power of his indwelling spirit 
and by the power of what he's accomplished in and through and by the cross, you need to ask, for, ask Jesus each day to put to death the lust desires within you and ask him in prayer, Jesus, replace that lust with the fruit of your self-control and replace it with sexual purity. That's, that's a must. This is something you need to be praying for, guys especially. But in addition to personally taking responsibility, putting lust to death daily through prayer, in addition to that, you know what you need? You need regular, I would say weekly, I would say bi-weekly, I would say at a minimum monthly, what is called accountability. And what accountability is with a trusted Christian friend is just being able to confess your sins to each other. And the more you confess your sins to one another, the less you find yourself sinning. And so you find that Christian friend who's not going to blab about all your lustful sins on social media or with anyone else. I would encourage this to to be someone who is not your spouse. If you and your spouse can manage that kind of relationship, I think that's fine. I think that's good. But I would find someone else of the same gender to share uh, this struggle with and hold your feet to the fire. In fact, why not get multiple people in your life? If this is a big issue and this is a pattern in your life, the pattern of lust and diving into that sin, the more people you find who can hold your feet to the fire, the better. Why not? And let me just say to you guys here at Mercy Hill Church, if you don't have someone who is willing to hold your feet to the, the fire in terms of the lust issue, I, talk to me. Talk to, talk to me at least. And if it's not with me that you have accountability with, I'll find someone else for you to have accountability with. I want to pr- help you protect yourself from you. And we need each other. That's why the church is here, is to help us save us from ourselves. Christ uses us to, to do that and to protect us from these desires, from getting out of control. Is it not worth it? Think about this as I close this point. Is it not worth it to put to death the lust within? Is your marriage not worth it? Is your future marriage not worth it? Is your relationship with Jesus not worth it? Is your mental health not worth it? Is your spiritual health not worth it? Of course, it is worth it. It is worth it. We need each other. We need help. All right, let's move on to commandment number eight. Point number two, just to confuse you, simply is this. Number two is, commandment number eight, there's to be no stealing of other people's stuff in the life of the follower of Jesus. Generosity toward others is to be pursued. So no stealing, but generosity in the life of the follower of Jesus. We get this from verse 15. It says four words, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. And for the Hebrew nation back in the day, this brief command covered off a lot of stuff, a lot of nuances, a lot of offenses, and a lot of crimes, such as kidnapping, for example. When you kidnap someone, you take that person for some sort of agenda that you have, and you realize you're actually stealing that person from their own life, from their own schedule, from their own routine. You're stealing that person from their own family and from someone else. And so it's a form of theft. And in short, this command to not steal, it covers and encompasses uh, forbidding any and all forms of theft in whatever manifestation that theft takes. Forbidding taking from someone else what God has given to that person or group. Forbidding taking from someone else what God has given you. How could I take what God has given you? And so this command not to steal, it really was all about establishing the basic human right 
to you having your own personal property. It transformed society back then, has transformed our world. Uh, It's helped society at large sort of gain protections over what you own, which is why stealing is, here in Canada, a criminal offense. So having your stuff stolen, has this ever happened to you, by the way? Have you ever had your stuff taken away? It, it's, it's a terrible feeling. It just it feels rotten. Um, I had my car broken into about three or four years ago until I clued in. I, I shouldn't have anything of value in my car. Once I took everything of value within my car, they stopped breaking into it. But it felt terrible. Uh, but another example, a couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I and my kids, we live in a townhouse complex not far from here. And there was a, a period of time a couple of years ago where several different units were getting broken into. And what the thieves figured out was a lot of people would not lock the sliding door in the backyard. And so they would go in, take all their valuables, and get away with it. And it really hit home when it happened to our neighbor right next door across the wall. And that neighbor made it a practice to not lock the back sliding door. Well, needless to say, after that happened... They're locking their back door every time, and so are we. I mean, we've got multiple ways of ensuring they can't get through that door. Now, flagrant, obvious stealing like this, uh, obviously wrong, right? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to to know that that is wrong. Wrong in the sight of God, wrong in the sight of the the people that you do harm to, wrong in the sight of our our legal system. But let let me ask you this. Let's go deeper. Let's take it further down. Is it possible that there might be areas of theft in your life that are more subtle, a little more unseen? For example, think about your marriage, if you're married. Is it possible to steal from your spouse? Maybe you are the family bookkeeper. You manage the family finances. And you don't give your spouse what they are due every payday. So you're fudging the family numbers so that there's more money in your pocket than theirs. Is this a form of stealing? Is this a form of stealing? Or what about, let's talk about taxes. Don't we love taxes? Paying taxes, so much, so much joy in that. And let's say you're fudging your tax return with a CRA. A little accounting, you know, gymnastics over here, a little accounting gymnastics over there. Is this a form of stealing from the government? What would you say? Or what about stealing from God? This is the pastor's favorite one. Is it possible to steal from God? Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 to 10 says, yes, it is possible to steal from God. Here's how. That passage talks about God's people. God is confronting God's people at that time, and God is saying to them, you're robbing me. God says, you're robbing me. And you're robbing me because you're not giving me or in the temple uh, the proportion of your income that you that that I require that I command you to is this a form of stealing can you f- steal from God in this way by withholding a proportion of your income if you're a follower of Jesus to his local church like Mercy Hill is that possible and by the way before you let yourself off the hook because I've encountered this a lot a lot of Christians let themselves off the hook of the giving side to a local church for the mission of Jesus um, well, you've got to remember the poor widow. Remember the poor widow that Jesus com- commended? She gave all she had to the purposes of God. You know what I'm saying? And so no, none of us are off the hook for giving generously towards the purposes of God. That's a form of theft. Let's move on. Okay, one last p- uh, thing on this point. Uh, not stealing is the minimum, benchmark minimum requirement for God's people, including us. But sure enough, 
we, ha- we need to take it further. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, takes this not stealing thing even further where it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So, of course, don't steal, but rather, Paul says, go deeper. Go deeper. Work honestly and work hard to earn your own money so that you don't need to steal anyone else's money and so that you can earn money to be more generous, to, to give generously to those in need in and around you, your, your kids, your family, your friends, your neighbors, needy people in your church family. So he's saying, live a life of generosity. That's the opposite of stealing. And let us pursue this. Let us pursue a life of generosity. Let's move on to commandment number nine. It's point number three. Again, just to confuse you, you ready for this? Number three is simply, there's to be no lying or falsifying the truth, fudging the numbers in the life of the follower of Jesus. No lying, no falsifying of the truth in the life of a Christian. We get this from verse 16. From the Ten Commandments, it says simply, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, originally the design of this command You know, in part, God is helping the nation of Israel get organized as a society, including the judicial, civil law side of things. And the original design of this command was for legal purposes in a legal courtroom, judicial-like setting, where if charges were brought forward to Israel's leadership, who served as the judiciary at the time, then your testimony... If someone was accused of something, you were an eyewitness, well, your eyewitness testimony had to be solid. It had to be truthful. It had to be not exaggerated at all. Why? Because in a legal setting, just like today, if you stretch the truth or you outright boldly, bald-faced lie about something in your testimony, what happens? Well, the person that you're testifying against could be wrongly punished, and even to this day, This is why committing perjury is such a serious crime. If you lie in court, lie on the stand, it's punished rather severely. So the question is, is this command, is it limited to just the courtroom, just only for legal purposes or for legal situations? What's the answer? No, it is not limited to just that. This command to not bear false witness applies more generally to any and all use of dishonest or deceptive language any and all use of dishonest or deceptive language, dishonesty in your marriage, dishonesty with your kids, dishonesty with your parents, dishonesty at work, and so on. Pastor theologian David Guzik, he nicely describes sort of the more general application of this commandment, and I quote, and he says, in an extended sense, we can break the ninth commandment through slander. Tailbearing, that's telling stories. Creating false impressions by silence. That's my favorite one. I'm really good at it. By questioning the motives behind someone's actions. And lastly, or even by flattery. I want to ask you this. Let's talk about slander. Have you, have you slandered someone recently? Have you stretched the truth about this person's character with someone you were talking to behind their back? Do you tend to struggle with slandering in general or maybe gossiping, talking smack about others behind their back? It's actually a form of of lying, 
misrepresenting the truth? Or are you a storyteller? You like to tell stories. You like to exaggerate. You like to sort of make them a little more interesting with a little more pizzazz and a little more spice. And again, this is something I struggle with at times. And exaggeration, it's something that I've identified. I need to be, especially as a public speaker, pastor, person who teaches the Bible, I've got to be praying about this every day. And the prayer to Jesus goes something like this. Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, would you put to death any and all subtle or overt dishonesty and exaggeration in what I say and communicate to others? Jesus, nip it in the bud before that stretching of the truth manifests on the outside. Save me from me. All right, to close this point, do you ever find yourself creating false impressions, maybe using silence to withhold needed truth, questioning other people's motives? Are you a person who does that? Do you question other people's motives quite frequently? Or lastly, are you a flatterer? You like to sort of butter people up and stretch the truth in so doing to sort of win them over because you have some sort of subversive agenda to do that. Is that you? Let us be, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of representing him, for the sake of holiness, for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of representing this church family, let us be, let us be relentless truth tellers in the home, in our marriages, with our kids, in our workplaces, in our church family situation as well. All right, let's now complete. We're coming down to the end. We finally made it to the finish line of the final commandment of the Big Ten, and it's number four in your notes, just to confuse you again. Commandment number ten is number four. (laughs) There is to be no coveting of other people's relationships and stuff in the life of the follower of Jesus. Be content with what God's given you. There's to be no coveting of other people's relationships and stuff in the life of the follower of Jesus. Be content with what God's given you. We get this from verse 17. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. First of all, let me define for you the word covet. It's not a a word that we commonly use in modern English today, uh, but the word uh, covet was originally written, uh, sorry, the Old Testament, these Ten Commandments were originally spoken and written in ancient Hebrew language, and the Hebrew word for covet is, get this, you ready for this? The Hebrew word for covet is hamad, literally means to pant after, and I won't try to show you what that looks like. Think of a dog. Okay, the dog's been, been on a long run, a long walk. What is the dog panting after when he gets home? Water. It needs water. It's pant. It needs water. It desires water. It desires water because it doesn't have water, so it's got to get water. It's panting after it. Okay? Maybe you're walking through the desert. You need water. There's no, no, no water to be found. You find yourself panting after water. It's that same idea. That's coveting. It, it means panting after something you don't have, panting after something you don't currently have. And interestingly, while the four previous commandments, they focus more on outward actions or words spoken, this 10th commandment actually goes deeper. It goes within. It's more on an inner world kind of command to not let your inner desire, your inner panting for other people's stuff or other people's relationships get out of hand 
before it causes you to break the more outward commands like stealing or lying or murdering or committing adultery, you see? Protecting, he's trying to protect us from ourselves. So this commandment's connected to the other commandments. And here's how there's a progression with the sin of coveting, by the way. And this is helpful for you and for me to understand so that we don't sort of land and go over the guardrail that this commandment is supposed to provide us with. There's a process to how the sin of coveting happens within you. And generally speaking, coveting, the sin of coveting begins with the eyes. With your eyes, you see something. And it's something attractive. Okay? It can be a person. It can be a thing. I am looking at this person. I'm looking at this thing, this iPhone, this Camaro, this Mustang, this relationship, this coworker, whatever it is. And that is where it begins, with your eyes. Then from your eyes, it goes to your mind. And your mind is then processing what your eyes have landed upon. And your mind is now admiring what your eyes have seen. And your mind is now processing it. Your mind is now thinking about it and considering this thing and is now fantasizing about what your eyes have landed upon. The wheels are turning. Then from your eyes to your mind, it moves on to your will. And what your will is, is your decision center for who you are. And with your will, you make the choice, you make the decision, you know what, I'm going to go after this thing, I'm going to go after this person, I'm going to possess it, and I'm going to take action with my body to go get this thing, to go get this person in some way, and I'm going to get this thing, I'm going to get this person for myself. And my point is, just because you haven't yet taken the final step of action, where your body has been activated by your eye, mind, and will, it doesn't mean that you haven't yet sinned, you see. And so what you must do, what I must do, is when you, you see a car, or you see a job, or you see a fishing rod, or you see some fashion, uh, or you see those jeans, or you see that shirt, or you see that spouse, or you see that hair, or you see that body, or you see that coworker. Whatever it is that you, you find yourself panting after and desiring, what you have to do in that moment, and do it right away. Nip it in the bud. You've got to pray and ask Jesus, please, Jesus, save me from me right in this moment. You've got to a- ask Jesus to activate his indwelling Holy Spirit within you to put to death this coveting desire to stop you from putting your your coveting into action. Nip that dissatisfaction with your life in the bud. I'll say it again. Ask Jesus to activate his Holy Spirit to help you nip that dissatisfaction with your life in the bud. It will save you all kinds of pain, save you all kinds of trouble, save you all kinds of money, actually, as well. As we've talked about very often, you know, the New Testament of the Bible, it takes the Ten Commandments even deeper and even further, and they do they they, they give these t- they take these commandments even further to give us a better idea of God's intent for His people to live a life of vertical love towards God and live a life of horizontal love towards those people in and around us. Hebrews chapter thirteen verse five uh, speaks to. Let's look at the opposite of coveting. Have you thought about that? What is the opposite of coveting? Well, the verse five from Hebrews thirteen says it's this. Keep your life free from love of money. And here it is. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
In other words, to keep, in order for you to keep your panting after other people's stuff uh, or other people's relationships, here's what you got to do. To keep that panting under control, you need to learn the Holy Spirit-given discipline and fruit of contentment. Pray for contentment every day. Contentment being simply, are you happy with what God has already given you? Do you need everything that your neighbor has? Do you need those crazy Christmas decorations that your neighbor has, like my neighbor has? Like, it's, it's gone over the top. And I'm just like, wow, that would look good. No, I actually don't feel that. I feel it more about cars and fishing uh, and food. You know, I, I want that steak really bad. Uh, but being happy with what God has already given you. Are you ha- Let me ask you, are you happy with your house the way it is? Are you happy with your car the way it is? Are you happy with your job the way it is? Are you happy with your spouse the way he or she is? You gotta be. You gotta be. Are you happy with your income the way it is? You gotta be. And remind yourself of that great promise from Hebrews 13.5. Do you see the promise there? It says, God will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never leave you. That, isn't that good? Do you believe this? If you are discontent, if you are dissatisfied with your life, if you're panting over this and panting after that, it's proof that you don't believe this promise. It's proof that you don't believe that God will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm saying you've got to believe that. Believe that. It's true. There's nothing better than God saying to you, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you in Christ. All right, let's pray. That's all I got. Lord, these commandments are so practical. We can't obey them in and of our own strength. We need your Holy Spirit, and we need what you've already accomplished for us in your cross to change us and to be transformed, to walk in your ways versus our own. And so motivate and empower us to do these things for your name's sake and for your glory alone. Save us from ourselves. Help us to use these guardrails uh, to stop us from going over the cliff and instead to live a life of love towards you and towards others and to see the wisdom behind that. Uh, Lord, as we come to the Lord's table today, we remember your perfect life lived for us in our place because we could not meet the Ten Commandments or obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. You did that for us as our substitute. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died our death on the cross for our sins in our place as our perfect sacrifice. That you were forsaken for us for those sins and died for us, and then three days later you rose from the dead. We would have nothing without your finished work on the cross, without your resurrection, and we are deeply, truly grateful. May we remember the gospel. May we remember your great sacrifice for us. May we examine ourselves in light of the gospel. May we take this moment to confess our sins to you and confess the various ways in which we've broken the commandments this last week and to receive your ongoing grace that is available to any and all Christians. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We worship you in Christ's name. Amen.